take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3. The text is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And our series is a series of messages we're calling Turning to Bethel Wheel about insights and inspiration from this Jesus group, the letter to this Jesus group, the Philippian uh, church, on how to follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus. When you, ha- when you follow Jesus and when you help others follow Jesus, you're doing a lot more than it appears like you're doing on the surface. Late one night, I got a call from a young man that was in our church at the time. And he said to me, Pastor, he said, my family wants me to talk with you before I do what I'm going to do. And often that's the way it works when people come and talk to the pastor. They're going to do what they're going to do. And then they're going to they're talk with you first, maybe, but they're probably going to do what they're going to do. This young man was really very unhappy in his marriage. And he'd met someone else, and he was thinking about leaving his wife for that other person that he felt like would make him happier. And I remember as we sat outside a coffee shop late at night, he said to me, I used to think that, you know, happiness and holiness would go together. But now I, ha- I think I have to choose between happiness and holiness. He was wrestling with the temptation to believe that happiness or joy requires an absence of any suffering or misunderstanding or difficulty or hardship. And on some scale, we all have the same problem. Is, is this following Jesus thing really going to make me happy? Am I really going to be fulfilled if Jesus is a big deal to me? Now, we want to read uh, Philippians 3, 1 through 11, and I want you to notice immediately, you know, Paul repeatedly, of course, the theme of Philippians is Christ, but he repeatedly mentions joy in connection with Christ, and he does, does that here, and you, you can't lose the context of he's writing it from prison where he never really is ultimately going to get out, but he's going to die. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that's from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, now we're outside class, and so it's easy to be distracted now, isn't it? But what we have here is a very important, powerful part of God's Word. So I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to ask God to give us a special attention to this. And, and uh, so pray with me now as we plead with the Lord for that. So Lord, uh, we're outside on a beautiful summer day, and it's, it's, it's pleasant, and we're grateful. And it would be easy for us, Lord, to to let our minds wander to what we're going to do next and the rest of the week. And it would be really easy to kind of do a little religious thing and then set you comfortably aside and then go about our own business. But Lord, I pray that you wouldn't let us do that. I pray that with whatever means required, whether you capture our hearts through the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset or the laughter of a child's voice, or whether you humble us through suffering or relational difficulty, that that you would capture our attention and help us to make progress in faith, that you would be everything to us and that we'd be willing to set aside anything for you. Help us to see that. I pray especially right now for those that are listening to the sound of my voice to whom they are spiritually maybe confused or they're, they're depending on their own righteousness or they're depending on their own religion or they're depending on their own good works or their own sincerity or, or, or religion or, or, or they're here and, and, and they're just maybe kind of half engaged but haven't seen the treasure that you are, how precious you are, how beautiful you are, how valuable you are, how knowing Christ is everything. I pray that they would see that today, that each of us would see that anew and afresh today. And we ask that you work among us right now and work among the children who are being ministered to right now, I pray. And those who are watching or listening online, I pray that you draw people to yourself today through this beautiful truth in your word. And thank you that it's here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Paul begins, says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says something interesting. He says, I'm gonna say the same thing I always say. And then he says, and that's, what, that's safe for you. As a matter of fact, if you want a title for the message, which I know you really do want a title for the message, it would be the same things are the safe things. The same things are the safe things. If Jesus doesn't return first and we come back to this church 20 years from now, I hope we're saying the same things because the same things are the safe things. But the people in Philippi, that little cluster of people, you know, that started down by the river, included the Philippian jailer and Lydia, the seller of purple, and, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the others that were gathered there, maybe even the, the snake girl that got delivered, right? They had been given the pure truth of the good news of Jesus. Like, you can repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, and Jesus will give you his righteousness, and you will be uh, clean and pure before God, and you will have eternal life. And then Paul had gone away and others had come in and taught them something different. 
actually the folks that had come in hadn't taken away from what Paul said as much as they'd added to it. And we tend to think of the danger of things being taken away. And I think about that. That's, the text today isn't really talking about that in, in a sense. It's talking about adding to, not taking away. But another day, we'll talk about taking away, not saying things we ought to say, not teaching things we ought to teach, not preaching what we ought to preach, not believing what we've believed because the Bible taught it. We'll talk about that someday. But we're talking about something a little more tricky, a little more slippery, but just as evil, and that is adding to, adding requirements to what Jesus has said. And that, that's what's happening here. And that there's, a, there's a specific sect of false teaching that is infiltrating the Philippian church, and they are those that are bringing Jewish legalism to the church. And other kinds of legalism are every bit as evil and wrong and pernicious and dangerous and deadly. And we know that because of the way Paul talks about it. He names these Jewish legalists who are saying, hey, you're not saved unless you're circumcised, right? This is an example of something they would say. You're not saved or you're not right with God unless you keep these certain extra-biblical Jewish legalistic things. And the you know, today it might not be Jewish legalism. There are kinds of legalism that come in adding to the faith. Religious systems that require works for salvation are dangerous and deadly and wrong, and they should be resisted. That's what Paul's doing here. Any religious system that adds the necessity of works to salvation is not a genuine Christian expression. It's a dangerous thing. Now, how do we know that? Listen to what Paul says. Look out. Three times he says this. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. At this point, we're not really sure who he's talking about. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he says, because we're the true circumcision. Now, this is, a gen, this is a difficult thing to talk about here in mixed company. So let's just move quickly through this. But there was this, obviously, this religious, uh, this religious ceremony of circumcision. And it was uh, required in Old Testament Judaism. It was not required in the New Testament church. It wasn't required to be spiritual. It wasn't required to be saved. But the false teachers would come in and say it's required for both. Those people he called dogs. This was a, this was a play on words because when Jews talked about Gentiles who were really bad, they called them dogs. We have a dog in our presence named Lily, I think I met before it serves. We're not talking about a nice little pet dog like Lily over there. We're talking about the mean, cur, dangerous dog. And when the Jewish people talked about Gentiles, as a matter of fact, they, they used the same word to describe male prostitutes in the Greek world. And now Paul twists it and he uses it on Jewish people because Paul's subtle like that. He says, Walk out, look out for them. They're dogs. They're dogs. And in case you wondered what he meant by that, he said, and they're evil. Understand this and hear this carefully. Adding something to the Bible is not safe. Adding something to the Bible is evil. Hear this. Adding something to the Bible is not good practice. Adding something to the Bible is a kind of sin. And it's a particularly dangerous kind of sin. It's a distracting kind of sin. There are young people who when they reject the things we added to the Bible, will also reject the Bible. When they reject the things we added to the Bible, they'll also reject, God forbid, Christ himself. The beauty of Christ will sometimes not be seen by people, 
because we've obscured his beauty, if that's at all possible, with all the things we've connected to him, we have more rules than he has rules and in, in some cases. And, and so this was true then, and he calls them dogs, verse 2, evildoers, and, and he goes on and says they mutilate the flesh. We don't really even need to go into detail there. He's using a very graphic way of saying these are not good things. These are bad things. These are destructive things. They're not true circumcision, but the true circumcision, worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And listen, put no confidence in the flesh. So he says the, 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 these false teachers that are adding to what I taught you when I was with you, what we taught you, and Paul was saying with Luke and, and Timothy and so forth, these false teachers that are adding, they're not genuinely, that's not genuine spirituality because genuine spirituality is the worship of the spirit, not the flesh. And the glory of Christ and not the self. And has no confidence in the flesh. In other words, genuine Christianity puts how much confidence in our own ability to please God? None. No confidence in, in self-righteousness. So to save you listening too carefully today, I will tell you that there are two points to the message. You have a choice between one thing and the other here. You have a choice in a version of self-righteousness, and we have this choice every day. We have this choice once and for all when we're saved. We have the choice every day when we act like we're saved or if we act like we're saved. And we have the choice kind of ultimately. It's the choice that will determine our ultimate eternal destination and the eternal destination of those that we love. And it's just this simple. And that is, will we depend on our own righteousness or will we depend on Christ's righteousness? Will we depend on our, like a version of our own kind of good deeds or good works or our own sincerity or our own religion? Will we have self-confidence or God-confidence? Will we have godless confidence or will we have gospel confidence? And you're going to see this really clearly here because as we read, you could tell Paul was talking first about those who came in and brought this false doctrine. He said, and they call themselves Jewish. And he's like, I'll show you who's Jewish. And then he gives kind of his resume of Jewishness, which is pretty impressive. He says he was circumcised the eighth day. Have you ever heard, like my neighbor, I have a neighbor, good neighbor, folks, that I met. She says, we're cradle Catholics. What that means is they've been Catholics since they were born. They're cradle Catholics. I mean, we didn't come into this later. Our parents raised us this way. This is what Paul is saying about his Judaism. I was circumcised on the eighth day, not sometime later. He says, I'm from the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember when there was the civil war and the northern tribes disobeyed and had false worship and the two southern tribes? And of the two southern tribes, the most faithful of the southern tribes was Benjamin. He goes, that's me. I'm from the tribe of, I'm not just circumcised on the eighth day, a cradle Jew. I'm also from Israel. I'm also from the tribe of Benjamin. And he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's talking about his language. You ever met Dutch folk and they say, I'm Dutch? And you say, speak Dutch to me? And they go, well, really, it's my grandmother who was Dutch. Because you, you can say you're Dutch, but if you don't speak Dutch, you're not as Dutch as somebody who actually speaks Dutch. There's a Dutch language, right? Yeah. So if you feel really proud about being Dutch, like, talk to me. Paul's like, I can speak Hebrew. 
And Paul was Paul of Tarsus, not Paul of Judea, not Paul of Jerusalem. So his parents, who lived a long way away from Jerusalem, had seen to it, they kept this language. He was real Jewish. He says, don't let those people come in and impress you with their Jewishness. The guy who told you the simple story of Jesus was more Jewish than those guys. And he said, as to the law, as a Pharisee, that was kind of a good thing. We look at it as sort of a bad thing. But if, if you're careful and you read the Bible real careful, you'll see that a distortion of Phariseeism was bad, but, the, but a high view of, of the law and a love for God's law. And he was serious. He studied under Gamaliel, which, which would have meant a, t- a tremendous you know, traveling and, and all of that. And then he says, as to zeal, he, I persecuted the church. I, it's like, if, if you're looking for people who are sincere, this guy was very sincere. He was so sincere that he not only would call out people who were false, he would go hunt them down and bring them back to justice. He was zealous. And he said, as to legal, legalism, legal righteousness, he says, I kept all the laws, I was blameless, which didn't mean he was sinlessly perfect, but it did mean that when he slipped, he would correct it in a legal way. And he said, my record is clean, I was blameless. Now he said, all of these things, he said, what, is, what does Paul say about all these things? Well, it's a little bit like a friend of mine. I have a friend whose name is Cliff, and Cliff is quite an athletic guy. I mean, he's kind of an old dude now, but back in the day, I remember when I was in the discipleship uh, relationship with Cliff. He was a stout guy. They paid him a lot of money to fly places and play semi-pro softball. And I one time pitched batting practice for him, and he, all the hits were home runs in left field. He could put the ball wherever he wanted it. He was quite an athletic guy. In his basement, there was a huge room of shelves with trophies on them. Everywhere he went, he got a trophy. Now, Cliff is my friend, and I baptized Cliff. Uh, so, and also, he's very, he's very big and athletic, so I wouldn't say anything bad about him for a lot of reasons. But someday when Cliff passes and his widow, if, if his widow, you know, she outlasts him, like, what's she going to do with all that stuff in the basement? What, what's she going to do with that? No, seriously. She's going to have a garage sale and going to say, hey, trophies, you know, for everybody who, who wants a trophy, like that stuff is going to be like back up the dumpster because we got to get rid of this stuff because it's, it's just worthless. It has, no, it has very little value. I mean, the memory and Cliff was a great guy and, you know, but, but, but those trophies, it's a, it's a little bit like that. Paul says, but whatever I gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. When I understood who Jesus was, remember, Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and he realizes who he is. And then he trades everything he has for Jesus. Everything he, think about that. This would be money. This would be prestige. This would be esteem. He would have his own podcast. He would have his own video channel. He had his own groupies. This is is kind of a big deal. And he looks at that. It's It's like you have a PhD on top of your PhD and you're tenured and you have all, and you say, you know what? We're going we're gonna to set that aside and everything that goes with that. The security that goes with that, the money, the esteem that goes with that, because I realized I was wrong and Jesus is everything. And that's what Paul does. And so what he's saying here to the Philippians is, to the Philippian church, the people in Philippi, he's saying don't, be, don't get pulled back into any kind of self-righteousness. Trade everything you have for Jesus. Gamble everything you have on Jesus. He says, 
this is in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. The stuff that was in the plus column flipped and became the minus column. And the stuff that I used to persecute people for, I became that. All the minus stuff became plus stuff. That's what Jesus does. He tends to reorient our priorities. One of the ways you can tell if you're really following him is look at your priorities and see if they got flipped on their head. Because if, if you really love what Jesus loves, that's what happens. He says, for his sake, I've suffered. This is in verse eight. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And the word there is a, is a word for excrement. Or many Greek scholars believe it's a, it's a word for excrement. He literally is saying, that stuff is of absolutely no value. It's offensive to me now. In order that I may gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Are you paying attention to this? Think about this. There is a righteousness with which we can stand before God that doesn't come from obedience to the law or to any religious system, but comes as a gift imparted to us by Christ. Before God, he puts his righteousness on our account before God. And he takes our sin and puts it on his account before God. And those are two of those big theological words in the Bible. Imputation is an accounting word. It means it's like that his righteousness was put into our account and our sin was put into his account and he died for our sin. And so then before God, this justification word is a word used like a legal word. It means before God, a simple way would be to say just as if we'd never sinned, we're justified before God. Paul is saying that happens, listen, please listen. The, Paul is saying that happens in an instant when you, when you see who Jesus is. When you see that Jesus took your sin upon, now you say, well, I'm a Christian already, pastor. You didn't need to tell me. Oh, oh yes, I do, because the, the Philippian Christians needed to hear this. Why? Because once and for all, one must choose Christ over everything else. And every day, one must remember that it is Christ over all, Christ over all, Christ over all. In other words, we don't get saved by self-righteousness. And Paul in a moment is going to talk about what happens after we're saved in our growth in sanctification, holiness, growing like Christ, progress in holiness. He's going to say that depends on knowing Christ or reckoning back, remembering that he's everything and ultimately, our glorification, you have this imputed righteousness, justification, sanctification, this is growing like Jesus in our life, and ultimately glorification when we go to be with the Lord, the Lord comes and returns and brings heaven to earth. When we're with him in the eternal state, in the resurrection, we'll be based on not our righteousness, but on Jesus' righteousness. And that's what Paul says here. So if you imagine, imagine that some of you, let's say, are you a bad girl or are you a good girl? Don't answer out loud, okay? Are you a good guy or are you a bad guy? Don't answer out loud. But if we just started, like, what makes people good? Like, you don't go get drunk at the bar. All right, let's put you in the good guy category. You go to church a lot. I'm gonna go with good guy. Uh, let's say you are faithful, morally faithful. You're gonna be in the good girl category. Um, but if you are not so faithful and you've had some indiscretions there, well, you're in the bad girl category. So what would we do? You know, you don't recycle. You're in the bad guy category, you know, right? So you, you, go, you don't go the right church, bad guy category, bad girl. 
What does Jesus say about that? What is Paul saying about that? Paul, was Paul in the good guy category or was he in the bad guy category? Well, he gave a big list. You're right, he was in the bad guy category, but his list was like good guy stuff. I kept the law, I was religious, I came from religious people, I did all of this stuff, I was blameless. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying good guys need Jesus, bad guys need Jesus, but good guys don't know they need Jesus as much as bad guys know they need Jesus. Good girls need Jesus, bad girls need Jesus, but bad girls probably know they need Jesus. You're paying attention now. I'm talking about bad girls in church, so now you're listening. Yeah, all of this to get you to listen to that. Now now we're listening. Yeah, because what? Because what Paul is saying is, don't be confused, any self-righteousness is unrighteousness in the place of Christ's righteousness. And so it's really interesting if you study carefully. What Eugene Peterson said something. I heard a fellow quote. Eugene Peterson said, he's with the Lord now. He said, there are no successful churches. This is just something to think about. He said, there are only collections of sinners. And the pastor is one of those sinners. It's probably what he said is pretty accurate. There are no really successful churches, just sinner collections, and the pastor's one of those sinners. Your religious resume shouldn't read, I went to Sunday school, I did this, I did that, I gave this, I gave that, I did that. It should read, somebody said it this way, three words, I'm with him. I'm, you get it? I'm with him. Why should I let you in heaven? Because I'm with Jesus, that's why. And that's the only reason why. Do you realize how beautiful this is? This should really capture your heart every day, if, even if you already knew it. If you didn't already know it, today would be choose Christ over self-righteousness and know that you are right with God and that you will have a home in heaven when you die and that between now and then you'll grow more and more like him because you're focusing on Christ's righteousness. So the scriptures aren't teaching it here, but they will. And the scriptures also teach, you'll see, the power, the working of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, making you like the Lord. And if you already know the Lord, it's like remind yourself of this every day. Remind yourself of what? Of Christ's righteousness, the two points, if you will. Are you gonna depend on self-righteousness or are you gonna depend on Christ's righteousness? Every day you sinned and you slipped, or you fell back into that, that, that the besetting sin, and it depresses you because you, for a moment, are falling back into depending on your own righteousness because, for your standing with God. But, but if when you sin and you recognize your standing with God doesn't depend on your practice of righteousness. Your st- Listen, your standing with God depends on Christ's practice of righteousness. That's what he's saying. That's shocking. Most religious people don't get that. Some of you don't get that. It's so pernicious in the culture. It's so insidious. It's like Velcro. You know, it sticks to the souls of people. The idea, this kind of works righteousness thing is super common. So in verses seven through nine, you really have Paul describing this imputation and justification, right? Jesus righteousness on my account, my sin on his account, and me being right with God, you being right with God based on Jesus' righteousness. But in verse 10, notice what it says. 
that I may, that after he's described justification, if you will, or salvation, kind of once and for all belief in Jesus, then he says something more, that I may know him. You already said that I know him, but he's like, the idea is, so I keep knowing him, or knowing more, or knowing more deeply, or more, more completely, that I may know him. And then he says, the power of his resurrection, which sounds wonderful, Whatever power raised Jesus from the dead works in the life of a believer to do is a power to do what God wants them to do. And then he says and something that's a little bit gives us pause that I may uh, share in his suffering. I was at Moody Bible Institute when I was, uh, I think it was 19, 18, 19 years old, and a famous pastor came and he preached a message on this text that I have never forgotten. And he mentioned a, a fraternity or a sorority or a fellowship, a society. He said, there is a society, a fellowship, if you will, a sorority, a fraternity of people who share in the sufferings of Jesus. Now, let's go back to that late night conversation with that young man who says, I, my life isn't an unbroken string of happiness. I need to change wives Jesus' answer to him would be not change wives, but recognize that happiness and holiness cannot be separated. And recognize that joy and suffering always go together. Paul is saying, I have laid down all these things that were on my resume, and now instead of me inflicting suffering on other people, I'm suffering. And the power of resurrection and the society, the fellowship, the, the fellowship with Jesus I have because he suffered and I suffered with him is working in me to help me know God more. It's part of the program. Now, if a pastor, no matter where they preach on TV or live, tells you something different, they're distorting the gospel. They're distorting the Bible. Beware of pastors who distort the Bible and take the suffering out. Remember what I said, 27 out of 27 New Testament books promise suffering for the believer. So difficulty shouldn't shock us, it shouldn't surprise us. We should recognize there, that's a part of the program. And in, there, there's a way, there's a paradox in which if we're just throwing ourselves on who Jesus is and believing in him, that even our suffering has a redemptive value. Even if our marriages aren't perfect, God is working in them. Even if our relationship with our kids is kind of broken and, 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 and frustrating and maybe disappointing, even if I tried to be good and I was good and it doesn't look like it's paying off, God is at work in that. That's why the message follow Jesus and help others follow Jesus ultimately leads to great joy and happiness and holiness all together. That, and that makes us cherish Jesus. And that's why Paul uses this language. Did I mean know him, the power of his resurrection, Share in his suffering. Be like him in his death. And then he talks about glorification, verse 11, that by all means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Imagine that. Paul says, basically, back the honey wagon up to my life and suck all the things that I thought were wonderful out of that. You ever have, one, do you have a septic tank at your house? I don't want to be too graphic here. Out on Bittersweet Farm, sometimes it's sweet, sometimes not so much, like last Christmas when the septic tank filled. And then we had to have the guy come out with 
the euphemistically named honey wagon. That ain't honey in that wagon. And he had to take this like tube and put it in my septic tank and pull all the contents of the septic tank out. Where does it go then? I don't even want to know where that goes. But I will tell you, Paul is saying that is your righteousness. Contents of the septic tank. That's your righteousness. This is really good news, people. This is the news that we get to share with people. The news they're hearing from most religious people is try, uh, try harder. And maybe God is going to let you into heaven if he sees you tried hard enough. Or like you've got a lot of bad to make up for. You're going to have to get baptized over and over and over again. And you have to take communion over and over and confession over and over again. And like you're going to have to do penance and sacraments and sacrifice and self-flagellation. Religious systems all around the world are full of that. But not the true religion of Christ. It's Christ alone and all of Christ and his righteousness and instantaneously placed onto our account his salvation and deliverance. And this will mean we're in the process of sanctification and this will mean that one day we'll be with the Lord. This is happy news. This is what we want to tell people. This is why you build a fire in your backyard and you invite your neighbors over and you get to know them so that somehow you can tell them that story. That's what they need to hear. This is why God is, I think, forcing us to spread out. In church history, this has happened before. It was through persecution, not through the virus, but the church was kind of forced to spread out. And Christians are better when they're spread out because that way then they can connect with other people who don't know the Lord. And I'm praying and I'm hoping and, and I'm trusting the Lord, and the elders are too, that the grow groups will begin to spring up little at a time this fall, here and there, as the Lord helps you um, to do that. You either participating in one or you're leading one or you're hosting one or you're praying for them or you're in a ladies' Bible study or you're in a ladies' prayer meeting or you're in a men's prayer meeting or men's group. And what, what, that there's, a, there's an expression where you can get together with other Christians, study the Bible to obey the Lord, and ask yourself the question, who else needs to hear this? Who else can we draw into this circle of friendship? This is really what was happening. This is the dynamic of the New Testament church. And then what Paul is saying is knowing Christ. So let me just say this. So, so all throughout the Bible, you have the importance of, of, a, of an intimacy with God, not just a... So Christianity isn't, have we established this? It's not a religious system. It's not a list, it's not a, it's not a, a, a list of things that we have to do. Christianity is not a philosophy of life. It includes a philosophy and includes an ethic, but it's not in its essence a philosophy of life. It's not in its essence a, belief, a system of, of beliefs. It's at its essence an opportunity for a human being to have a relationship with a human divine God, with a person, a divine person, Jesus Christ. You see this all throughout the Bible. Back in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, in the, in the cool of the day, walked with a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. They had fellowship with the person of God in personal form. Moses sees God face to face. Abraham calls himself a friend of God. David uses language of affection all over, like, my heart pants for you, my heart longs for you. This is not a wooden kind of religious observance that the Bible's talking about. It's relationship of fellowship, of forgiveness, of love. It's like you go with your son. I took my sons to North Manitou Island to hike before they go off to 
college, and I remember sitting on a bank and looking out over Lake Michigan and watching my son as he's getting ready to go away to college for the first time to hike up the beach. And, and, I, sat and, I, and I watched him hike up the beach, and I thought, what a delight it was to raise him. What a joy it was. This just powerful joy to raise him and how much I love him. And, I, and he walked up and he sat next to me on this piece of driftwood. And we just sat there and didn't say a word for a long time. And then he said to me, Dad, I love you. Now, human loves will always disappoint. But Jesus wants us to have intimacy, fellowship with him. The more you get to know him, the more you'll actually like him. To know him is to love him. We, we took a trip to Mexico once on a bus with a whole bunch of kids. Mentioned it before. It was really interesting because a lot of the people that got on the bus with a reputation, with a good reputation, got off the bus with a bad reputation. You know what I'm saying? When they got on, we're like, oh, that's a nice girl. That's a good guy. And then 30 days in the heat with no air conditioner on the bus, belching diesel fumes through the back window and humidity and weird food that was kind of weird that did weird things to you. You find out what people are like when you do that. Like before you get married, you, wanna get, you might want to, like that guy that you think is so handsome, he's got that you know, little cute thing going on with his chin and all that. And he's like rippling biceps and all that. Take him on the bus to Mexico for 30 days. And then when you're done, see if you want to marry him still, right? That little cute girl that's just like so cute, you know, and she's this and that. And the other thing, get her in the heat for a while and the humidity until the curls fall out of her hair. And then see how she behaves. And then decide if you want to spend the rest of your life with her. Now I want to tell you something. You will never be disappointed by the time that you spend with Jesus. Think of the person that you were most delighted with and multiply times an infinite number and to know Jesus. See, that's what Paul is saying. The more I, once I threw everything on him and I put my whole, I gambled my whole eternity on him. And then the more I've gotten to know him, the more I'm like him and the more I want to be like him and the more I want to tell people about him, he's everything to me. And so ask yourself the question, what is it that you talk about? What is it that you spend your money on? What is it that you spend your time on? What is it that you put your effort into? What is it that you default to thinking about? That ought to be Jesus, the importance. Of, like you ever, you know, I gotta tell you something I've noticed, and I'm gonna stop my rant here in, in a minute. But here's what I've noticed. Preachers, uh, people will send me videos of preachers sometimes. Sometimes they're really good. Sometimes, I mean, they're always like really interesting. But, but here's what I've noticed sometimes. Sometimes a pre preachers in our time, it's like they listen to CNN, and they listened really carefully to the narrative on CNN. And then they added their own Bible verses and they preached that. And all the CNN people go, amen, amen. Or are you with me? Are you with me? You're looking funny. Or they watch Fox News. And then they, they pay attention to all the narrative on Fox News, what everybody says on Fox News. And then they cherry pick their Bible for Bible verses. And they add the Bible verses to the Fox News narrative. And what they're really doing is they're giving people what they want and they're adding Bible verses to it. It isn't hard to get people to do that. What's really hard is for people to walk away from self-righteousness altogether and all the political narratives altogether and just say, Jesus is everything. Jesus is the only thing. And in the end, all of us will know that and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When you get to Revelation 21 and 22, the greatest feature of heaven is that God has come down to earth and lives among us. 
he says, the last thing he says is, behold, I come. So if you don't love Jesus now, it's, it's suspicious whether you're going to really like heaven because he's the main feature of heaven. Let's pray. God, help us to detect self-righteousness in our hearts. Deliver us from the desperate folly of self-confidence. Tether our hearts to your heart. Work powerfully in us now to show us your beauty and your value. Help us to know you and know you more and be like you and one day be with you and make our deepest heart affections godly affections and give us an appetite for God. Give us a hunger for Christ. Show us the way of rejoicing is the way of suffering. Teach us the way of gain is the way of loss. Help us to see the way of death to all the things that we once thought were valuable is the way of life. And help us to learn that suffering and joy and happiness and holiness go together when we follow Christ and when we help others follow Christ. God bless you.